From Like to Know It, this is Influencer Radio, a show about the influencer industry. This summer, I'm traveling across the pond to our London office to sit down with some of the most successful influencers in the United Kingdom. Together, we will unpack the unique personal and professional journeys of these creative entrepreneurs and get to know the whys and hows of the digital businesses they've built. As part of our Summer Abroad mini-series, we will have a new episode for you every week for four weeks. I'm Amber Vince Box, president and co-founder of Reward Style and Like to Know It, and an influencer myself. Welcome to Influencer Radio, Summer Abroad. I'm thrilled to introduce you to our guest today, a consumer favorite in the Like to Know It app. She also has a superhero name, Josie Fear, also known as Fashion Mumbler. Josie's as renowned for her work ethic as she is for her delicate pastel aesthetic. Well-respected amongst her influencer peers for the volume and quality of her flawless cross-channel content, she effortlessly balances her obsession with her job with finding time for herself and the three important men in her life, Charlie, her fiancé, and her two pups. After switching degrees from English to fashion management, Josie began a successful career in marketing at Mulberry. It was during her time there at one of the UK's most iconic luxury brands that she discovered influencers sitting front row at the Mulberry Fashion Show just six years ago. That inspired her to start her own digital corner of the web, and today Josie will be taking us through her journey to success, sharing the strategies she's developed along the way, how she delegates her work, and also the tips and tricks she lives by. Josie, welcome to Influencer Radio. What a lovely introduction, Amber. Thank you so much. That's very kind words from you. I'm so excited to be here. Josie, where did you grow up? I grew up in a town called Gloucester. It's probably most known for the cathedral being where a lot of Harry Potter was filmed, but it really is the middle of nowhere. It is about two and a half hours from London, and it could not be more different to how I live in London right now. My nearest shop was about a half an hour drive away, and I pretty much grew up on a farm, so very different to how things are now. Tell me about the English countryside, because I think it's a little bit different than the American countryside. Okay, so the English countryside, it it is really rural. It's absolutely beautiful. I think a lot of people maybe know about the Cotswolds is the most famous example of the English countryside. So really lovely, very old stone buildings. If you've seen The Holiday, a lot of houses genuinely look like that, really beautiful cottages. The view from my house would just be fields and fields with sheep and cows, and we had a little pigsty in our garden. It's very muddy, as you might have uh, guessed from the weather during your trip to London, but it's really beautiful, but very peaceful and quiet. What a romantic place to grow up. It was. It was very quiet, but yeah, beautiful. I feel like I would like your parents. Tell me a little bit about them. So my mum and dad, both very, very hardworking, and they really kind of taught me everything that I know about about business, running my own business. My dad actually started by having a just a local convenience store in our local town of Ross-on-Wye, and he recognised a bit of a gap in the market, that there were a lot of farms nearby and a lot of workers that were uh, from places like Poland and other Eastern European countries, and so he specialised in having things like Polish foods in the shops. And it was also a sweet store. So it was a really kind of go-to little shop in this small Gloucestershire town. And my mum used to teach children in schools. And she would teach special needs children. And then she would also have 
pupils come to the house, she would do things like after school Spanish lessons and things like that. You know, it's, it's really easy to see your parents in you. Your dad found a kind of a hole in the market and then created really value um, in, in a very small community through entrepreneurship. And I, I watch you with your peer group and you are very giving to them and really invest a lot back in them and hearing about, you know, your mom investing in the small community with um, being a special needs teacher and just helping other people to experience things in the world that they were not given um, just by, you know, the, the education in the city. What do you think it was that drew your mom to teach special needs children? Well, my brother actually has quite a few learning difficulties as well, and he grew up in Spain. And I think where he grew up, there weren't really opportunities and there weren't any structures in place to help people in his situation. And my mum didn't want anyone else to go through the struggles that he'd gone through. And she thought, okay, what are my skills? My mum could speak Spanish and she had a lot of patience, a lot of sympathy and a lot of time for children that did have some learning difficulties. And I think she found it really rewarding as well. And seeing, I used to see these boys and girls coming to the house and seeing how great they'd feel after spending time with her and how much they improved month on month, year on year. And I think she found that incredibly rewarding as she'd helped my brother as well. What kind of activities would you do growing up in this area of the world? <laughs> You're going to find this really funny. So growing up in rural Gloucestershire, there's really not that much to do. So you kind of have to make it up as you go along. I would very much uh, pretend to be a, um, a scientist in my garden. I would make mud potions and make my own mud masks, things like that. This is when I was obviously much, much younger. And then Growing up and finding my interest in fashion, there was no real inspiration immediately around me. So I would look to TV and magazines and I would crave those once every year trips to London to come to places like Harrods and go to places like the Victorian Albert Museum where we'd go to shows like the back then it was the Alexander McQueen exhibition and things like that. That's where I'd get so much fuel for my interest in fashion. Whereas back in Gloucester, there was uh, not there were no designer stores there were no um there wasn't really much fuel for my passion for the fashion industry back there so living out in the rural countryside what would you do for your first job my first job okay so my first time that I ever earned any money was when I was about seven or eight years old. I always, seeing mum and dad doing their thing and being so successful, I always just saw the value in creating a business where there's an opportunity. So the first thing that I did was when I was given by a family member a fortune telling book, I would charge my fellow peers in school their fortunes and I would charge like 10p or 20 pence to charge their fortunes. This was when I was tiny, like class three, class four. And then as I grew up, I would again just find opportunities where there weren't shops close to where I lived. So I couldn't go and get a job in a retail store. So I used to order clay online and I made my own jewellery. And then the jewellery was these really tiny little charms inspired by the sweets that my dad sold in his store. So I would spend hours just crafting dolly mix, licorice all sort, love hearts. I made a mould so I could create love heart pendants and I'd sell them at local fairs, online. And then growing up and when I was able to drive, <laughs> you'd think I'd get a cool job by then, but no, I would go to my next door neighbours and feed their chickens. Very glamorous, I know. And then finally I got a job in a local restaurant. And I actually think I learned quite a lot there about social interactions and customer service. 
And then finally I moved to London and got a job in retail and that's that's where it all started. Josie, I'm picturing you as this little petite blonde girl in elementary school with almost like a wizard hat on telling fortunes. It's actually adorable, but it's it's an I incredible story. I got so told story. off for that. I got detention and, and blocked from school for a while. Did, did you think that you wanted to stay in your hometown or did you want to get out? It wasn't that I wanted to leave, but I recognised that there wasn't going to be the opportunities there for what I wanted to do with my career. And in the UK, at least, London really is the place where a lot of the fashion opportunities are. And although I hadn't had any experience in the fashion industry, by the time I left school, I knew that I needed to go to London to have my first experience. So, yeah, it wasn't that I wanted to leave, but I just kind of had to for my own career moves I guess. Did you get to go to uni here? I did so after school I went to study English for a few months. I say a few months because my English teacher I spoke with her and expressed my love of the fashion industry and my love of writing and I said I'd love to be a fashion journalist I'd love to I want to write for Vogue one day and she said okay but maybe you should play it safe and get an English degree so I took her advice and I went to a university I got a scholarship to attend that university and studied English but after a few months we were doing Shakespeare we were doing Chaucer and they're really like heavy hitting subjects and I was not loving it and I instantly recognized this is not what I want to do so I gave up the scholarship, gave up that university degree, spent the following 10 months of the year again building different businesses from spray tanning to continuing with my jewellery. And then during that time off, I took an interview at the London College of Fashion. And it was there during that interview day and open day that I fell in love with that university and they took it so seriously. They showed the huge amount of jobs available in the fashion industry because Back in school, I didn't even know about marketing. I didn't know about PR. I didn't know about buying and merchandising because I didn't have family friends working in the fashion industry. There was no one that I could talk to that had these kind of jobs. So when I went to London College of Fashion, even just to the open day, being surrounded by all of these people who knew so much about this industry, I was like a sponge and I wanted to speak to everyone. I wanted to learn so much. And yeah, that was the decision made. So once you got there and you were exploring all these different sides of the fashion industry, which is, of course, more than just designers and making clothes and being a fashion editor, what was it that drew your attention? What role? I instantly was attracted to a degree called fashion management, and every aspect of this degree really appealed to me. Firstly, its breadth. It had so many different parts of the curriculum that were different areas of the fashion industry. So I thought, I don't know a lot about these different parts of the industry, but the degree was sold as one that teaches you how to run a fashion business. It had everything from finance to PR to marketing to buying and merchandising. The only thing it didn't have was the actual design and I'm not particularly great at drawing or designing so I thought that's fine I'd love to know the business side of a fashion industry so that degree instantly really appealed to me I did actually also apply to a fashion journalism degree but then when I spoke a little bit more to the lecturers it just became apparent that what I loved the fashion management degree would really appeal to me. So what was your next job when you graduated from uni? 
when I first moved to London, I hadn't even started my degree. I went around lots of stores in London and I handed my CV in. I, I went to speak to the manager and I handed my CV into lots of different stores. I had a retail job throughout my degree at Topshop in Knightsbridge. I was on the shop floor and also uh, working occasionally in personal shopping and I loved talking to the customers there. And then during my second and third year of university, I, I love to be busy. So I would work on the shop floor at Reese, which is a brand that I absolutely adore as is Topshop. And I also got myself through a lot of hard graft. I managed to get an internship at Mulberry in the marketing team there. And that for me was the foot in the door, which actually I got thanks to a connection, would you believe, back in Gloucester. That is another really long story. But that for me was a foot in the door at the company that it, a mulberry bag was my first ever designer purchase. It was a company that I adored. And even though I was literally steaming goodie bags and creating invitations for fashion shows, they weren't glamorous jobs. I really was making cups of tea and doing photoshopping and organizing store cupboards. I absolutely loved it. I felt that that's where I needed to be. And I worked my butt off there and eventually was offered a position as a marketing assistant. So you've touched on something that comes to mind whenever I think of you, Josie, which is how people have such respect for you and you've built a real reputation in the industry, not just with your peer group, but with brands or with platforms. And you've brought up something that I think is important for people listening that are thinking about this this industry or really any industry. And it's that that relationship that you had back home from when you were a young girl, someone was able to see something in you that they were willing to put their own reputation on the line to say she should work at Mulberry. Because look, if you got there and they hired you and it didn't work out, that's a poor reflection on the person that re referred you. And that's something that I think back on that I never understood growing up was actually the reputation that you build at home then matters when you go to uni. And then when you go to uni, the reputation you build there then matters in the workforce. And then when you're in the workforce, the reputation that you build with your peer group is how you're either promoted or brought into other opportunities. And it just never ends. And your reputation starts as early as honestly, your peer group can remember you and as, and as early as adults can remember you. And that's something that you've completely nailed and it's in its open doors for you. It's so true. You never know where people are going to end up in this industry. It's it's a huge and growing industry, but at the same time, it's a small industry. And even a girl that I went to school with back, back in Gloucester, she's now working for one of the biggest management companies here in London. And I think that every job that you partake in, you need to go over and above and make an impression for yourself because someone that's working in a fashion brand right now might in a few years time be working for another fashion brand that you have always wanted to work for and actually this has just happened for me and that person goes to their manager and says look I worked with Josie a couple of years ago and she was she went over and above you want to make that impression so that you can continue working with people throughout hopefully your whole career. It's something that, you know, we see in our business where we'll have um, a partner at a brand that then, you know, their career takes them to another brand. And that used to be something that, um, you know, more in my youth, I'd be like, no, we worked so hard, you know, growing that business and in partnership with this person. And then I have quickly learned that actually this is the best thing for our business. And that's actually what, what made our business take off was when the small group of people who did believe in us then got jobs other places and other places. And and the word about reward style and about like to know it spread virally just from our reputation in the market. And that's how we were able to grow partnerships with brands all over the world was actually just through reputation and people moving around within the industry. 
It's so incredible. And I think everything happens for a reason. And I'm such a strong believer in right place, right time. And that if you just, if you're open, have your eyes open to the opportunities and the people around you, then everything will happen that's meant to happen. My dad always says that successful people are the ones that are looking for opportunities, actively looking for opportunities. So agree. Tell me about Mulberry. So Mulberry, as I, as I said, it was the first luxury brand that I ever invested in. As soon as I got my first paycheck, it was straight to Selfridges, Bayswater handbag, every girl's dream. And in the marketing team, it was actually a very small team, which was great because the girls that were on my table, I could listen to all the different conversations. I could learn so much from these girls and I had so much respect for the girls in the marketing team. And I'd never experienced anything like it. It was things that you don't even think about that happen in a fashion brand. For example, when you're driving on a motorway and you see the big billboard displays, they were negotiating with the companies for the costs for that. And then it would be something on the complete flip side, such as how do we find a vintage personalization machine so that we can personalize the tote bags and the purses at our Vogue Fashion Night Out event? It was so varied. Obviously, I started as an intern, so I didn't get to make any of those decisions, but I loved seeing the level of precision and the level of perfection and detail that goes on behind a luxury fashion brand. One of the things that I had to do within my first couple of months was, and if there are any girls listening that ha- that actually received this invitation, then please shout out because I'd love to know. So we put together the spring summer 12, I think it was, invitation to the London Fashion Week show. And it was a box which had a beautiful Windsor and Eaton paint set inside. The paint set had nine watercolour blocks inside. And when you opened the block of paints, Emma Hill, who was creator director at the time, she wanted the paints to be in a certain order. So we had to take out the paint blocks 750 times, reorder them and put them back in so they were more visually appealing. That is the level of detail that we had to go through for these invitations. So it was laborious yes but also it made you really appreciate how these luxury brands get to where they are and how with any business reward style again is a great example when we go to events that your team organizes the level of detail and the perfection is what makes these companies stand out and makes them so memorable your experiences at mulberry really provided a a turning point for you or an aha moment what was that well when i was at mulberry i as I said, was on the last year of my university course. And I was a bit of a teacher's pet at uni. So I would say to my dissertation supervisor, yeah, just if there are any students that have any questions about the degree or anything, you can give them my email address. And as a result of that, I was getting bombarded with emails every single day from students that wanted to know how to get an internship or what's Anna Winter really like, or you know what, what goes on behind the scenes at a luxury fashion brand. And those questions I would put online, I'd put my answers online in the form of a blog. And I didn't, didn't really see it as a blog, but it was while working at Mulberry that I was putting together the headshots for the guys and girls that were going to be on our front row so that I could instantly recognize them and ensure that they got to their seat in a really smooth fashion. And one of the girls on the front row, her job title was blogger. And... I hadn't really thought of it as a career or I'd not thought of these bloggers as celebrities or 
influential people in any respect before that. So that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me, thinking, oh my gosh, this little website that I do in my spare time, this could actually become something. So that was a real pivotal point for me. So what was the blog called when you launched it? It was called Fashion Mumbler, as it is today. It was me mumbling about the fashion industry. And how many years ago was that? This would have been 2012, 2013, I think. So at this point, what's on the site are essentially FAQ answers. Mm -hmm. And then you've titled it Fashion Mumbler. What changed about the site? Well, initially it was responding to mostly questions. And then over time, the questions got a little bit more personal. For example, what moisturizer are you using? Josie, I noticed that you are wearing high heels while you're doing your intern duties. What's that like? Can you recommend tips on how to walk in these heels? So gradually, more as a result of the questions I was getting, my content changed to be a little bit more informative on a product focus as opposed to a tips focus. And I don't think I've ever deleted any of my old blog posts. I'm pretty sure they're all all still there. I would use stock images and I would just tweet any post that I'd written, I would tweet about it. And I'd often use hashtag intern, hashtag fashion intern, or if I wrote about a brand, I would tag the brand. And then those brands would repost and then the blog got seen by a wider audience. And it was actually around the same time as the fashion show where there was the blogger on the front row, I'd tagged a beauty brand Origins in one of my posts and they invited me to an event. What I didn't know is that it was actually a blogger event. I thought I was going to just a general shoppers event. The girls still tease me to this day because I took my bag of products up to them at the end and I was like, how how much do I owe you? And they're like, no, these are for you. And that was my first experience of a blogger event. And it really just opened my eyes to this huge industry that previously I had no idea even existed. At what point did you feel like the blog was viable or successful? It took a good couple of years, at least, of blogging out of pure pleasure. And there were no intentions for it to ever become a job. It just it didn't seem to be a career option in the early days. But it was actually after I left Mulberry and I was working at a software company that I put a lot more time into my blog because I was I was kind of missing the creativity and the and the fashion side of things. And I was putting so much of that into my blog that uh, sorry, and I'd also started a YouTube channel because of that. And it was then that I started to work with brands on collaborations and that made me realize, oh my gosh, brands are actually working with bloggers and seeing the potential and it's this whole new source of media. And that's when, after about eight months of my YouTube channel being launched, that's when I took it full time. Josie, I'm curious, from when you started the blog to when you started taking it more seriously when you're working at the software company... And then to the point where you were able to leave and actually blog full time, what did it take to get to that point and how long was it? Well, my YouTube channel started in the month of April. I can't remember the year. (laughs) But then it was actually by September that year that I was able to go full time. So it really was quite a quick Um, turnaround from starting my YouTube channel but I had had my blog for a couple of years prior to that. I would say that having the YouTube channel really made me a little bit more visible in the blogging industry and still to this day I find that YouTube is what is projecting my growth all round. I think that where there's growth with my YouTube it's helping my blog and my other social platforms so yeah it was probably when I hit around 20,000 subscribers on YouTube that I took it full-time. And so how did you go about 
reaching those goals? Like, did you have a certain dollar amount in mind of like, once I can make this a month or how did you, you get there so quickly? It, when it came to going full time, it wasn't as strict as I need to reach this much per month. It was more that I just wanted to ensure that financially I was secure. I was willing to take a big risk and it was a huge risk leaving what was a fairly well paid at the time job in the software company. But I'm such a believer in trusting your gut. So in, I think it was around May of that year, I thought to myself, okay, if I can have enough money saved up that I'll be okay until Christmas, I can pay my bills, I can afford to buy food, I can pay my mortgage. If I can be okay until Christmas, then we can see where it goes. If if this is a great success, then I don't need to go back to work. But if it's not a success, then maybe I can go back to working at the software company or somewhere else in January. So by between May and September, I was living on beans on toast and I was working my butt off both in the mornings and evenings before and after work and at weekends filming and shooting content, editing, replying to emails and things like that. So really working two jobs for a few months to just ensure that financially I was secure until Christmas. And luckily Christmas came, Christmas went, and I was like, hey, this is working. So I carried on. What were your sources of income during this time? When I started the blog full time? I would say it was mostly actually blog content, even though the YouTube channel is what was growing. Brands still at that time were very much looking for blog, Twitter, and um, Instagram content. And a lot of the time as well, because my numbers were still fairly small, they really valued the actual content quality. So they wanted content that they could repurpose. And you're still seeing that a lot today. Brands will often add that into their contracts. They'll say, okay, we want you to put XYZ on your channels, but we also want 10 photos or five GIFs or whatever it might be. But especially in those first weeks and months, it was equally content that they wanted as well as the publication on my own platforms. And what all platforms are you publishing to today? Today, so my blog is still going strong. I publish on it less frequently, but my blog is my baby, so I'm gonna gonna stick with that. YouTube, I publish three times a week, three videos a week. Instagram, I'm a lot more flexible with. When I have content, I will post it. I'm a little bit more edited on my Instagram, whereas, for example, on my Like to Know It page, I'll post a lot more, I'd say, kind of authentic content. Like, I might snap a picture in the mirror in the morning. Hey, guys, this is what I'm wearing. When I go back to Gloucester, it might be jeans and muddy wellies and a wax jacket. When I'm in London, it might be a nice skirt and jumper and really natural content, whereas Instagram is a bit more filtered. Then I actually have a virtual assistant who now manages my Facebook and Pinterest strategy. They're two strategies, they're two platforms that I thought these are ones that I can actually delegate to somebody else after coming up with a strategy with, with Molly, who does it. And then also I now have a newsletter as well. So that goes out every Friday and that is a little bit of a summary of what's on the other platforms, but also a bit of a shopping edit as well. So I like to give my newsletter readers something new and I also sometimes ask brands if they have any perks or discounts or freebies that they'd, that they'd like to offer to the newsletter readers. That is so much content. <laughs> Coming it's, from Amber. <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, just one YouTube video a week would be a full-time job to anyone and you're doing three plus you have other platforms and you're successful on these other platforms. People are coming to you. You're providing real value there. It's not just a place that you have, you know, stuck your name and created a profile page. So what does it take to do that? How many people are on your team and what are they all doing? 
it definitely was a bit of a turning point where I realized, oh my goodness, I cannot do this by myself anymore. That was actually back in 2016 and I reached burnout. I November, December 2016, I was burnt out and I had reached capacity. I could not do any more by myself. So that was when I got my first assistant and she was with me for a full year and it was a really great partnership. To this day, I now have two assistants, one of whom is with me on a physical level. So she'll come to the house, she will do things such as graphic design, she will do my YouTube description boxes, things which maybe you might not even think are time consuming, but that takes a really long time. If we're working on a wish list or a collage, she'll help with the beautiful designs with um, posts like that. I worked with a web designer as well. and. With the creative girls and guys that I work with, I'm such a perfectionist when it comes to how I want things to be that I will get my Crayola pencils out and I will draw exactly how I'd like it to look and then scan that into the computer and send it to someone. The virtual assistant, I say virtual assistant because that just kind of makes more sense, she was actually an intern at the software company, that's how I know her. So I know her physically but she lives up in Nottingham which is a couple of hours out of London. So she does things for me that we don't need to be face to face for. She will be very thorough when it comes to creating analytics when I work with a brand. Because I don't have an agent it's really useful to have someone that can go deep into things like how many views, how many comments and really provide brands with information that they really need and I don't have time to provide. And she'll also do what we like to call PR notification emails. So I understand that PRs and girls and guys working in the industry, they don't have time to watch every Instagram story, every YouTube video. So we find it really useful and really rewarding to send emails just saying, hey, just to let you know, your mascara was featured at 13 minutes in this video. And actually it's surprising how many collaborations come off the back of those emails. So it's really useful. That is fantastic strategy and something that you were very generous to, to, to share because that's not something that people often think of and it's not obvious. And it does take time, but as you mentioned, I can imagine that it's quite rewarding. So how do you think about investment? Because none of these things are cheap and people are definitely not cheap. Yeah, people are definitely not cheap. I think that in order for a company to grow, you have to invest. And I would say that the pivotal point of my company, of Fashion Mumbler, really growing was the second that I realized I can't do this by myself anymore. And you have to really take time with those in your team to find out what their skills are. Molly is fantastic at analytics and she's incredible at organizing data. So she's incredible and far better than I would be at the things that she she does. Georgia is such a whiz on Photoshop. I would be spending seven hours putting together the kind of collages that I see her doing in the time it takes me to go and put the kettle on. So investing in these girls has enabled me to achieve and do so much more in my in the company. And it means that I can spend time whether that's just brainstorming or going upstairs and filming a video, it enables me to spend time on things that fulfill me creatively and also help the company to grow. And are these guys, I know you have a digital, I mean, you're kind of a remote assistant. Is everyone else coming to your house every day or where are you guys working? So it's... Uh, at the moment, a very crowded dining table because my fiancé Charlie also blogs as his full-time thing, so he's there too. But we actually just got an office in Chiswick, so we are all going to be working from there. We're going to set up a proper little filming studio, and hopefully that will mean that we can actually switch off at 
seven o'clock in the evening and go home and enjoy time with our two little boys who I love that you mentioned in the introduction to this, my two babies. But yeah, I think that when we have a proper space, it'll feel a lot more serious than just crowding around the dining table. Well, congratulations. That's a huge step in your business. Thank you very much. So let's talk about Charlie. When did you meet him? <laughs> Charlie and I met back in 2012. We were not blogging at the time. It was before those days. Charlie was working in online advertising and I was studying at the London College of Fashion. We actually met in the Maldives, which is where we got engaged last December. Well, congratulations, Josie. Thank you. So what's it like working with someone who also is de you know, depending on this industry and growing in this industry? There are most definitely ups and downs. The ups are that we really understand what each other is doing. We understand the need to be pretty much working all the time. And we understand why sometimes you just have to be on your phone or on your laptop. Before Charlie was in this industry and when it was just me doing this, there would sometimes be a little bit of friction where perhaps I'd be on my phone on Instagram and, he, and Charlie would not understand that that is work. Whereas now he's doing it too, we totally get we get what each other's doing and we both are so passionate about this industry that we we have so much to talk about, we can brainstorm together. However, the flip side is that it is a job that we both love so much that we sometimes don't want to switch off from it. So we have to sometimes set an alarm and stop working when that alarm goes off, switch the laptops down, put them to the side, leave our phones at home, take the boys for a walk and create dedicated time as switch off time. So the men's blogging space is a little bit different from the women's. What have you learned from his business lately? Men's blogging in the UK for sure is is still quite small in comparison to female blogging. I think that Charlie notices that men want really instant content. Men want to be educated and they don't want all the fluff around it that us girls really appreciate. They want to know how to style something. They want it to be really educational Something that I find with my business as well is that you have to give people a reason to look at your content and Charlie absolutely does that with his. He will understand that a guy might see, for example, a rust-coloured suede bomber jacket in a store and a guy might think, oh, that's really cool, but I wouldn't know how to wear it. And then Charlie will do five ways to style a rust bomber jacket and it's then that people will be like, ah, yeah, actually, he's he's got a similar style to me. I could do that. So it's just a different way of thinking to how us girls consume media. Yeah. So you have a community at home. I've also seen you um, in your real life female blogger community, and you're very much the leader of that group. And people actually look to you for what you're doing online, what you're thinking about, the questions you're asking. Um, and you're very nurturing in that sense. What are the things that your peer group is asking you today? I think that where it's such a new industry still, there there's no one that we can really look to that's done it before. So we're all having to figure out so much as we go along. So it's really just kind of sharing information. For example, there's nowhere that we can go as a guideline on what to charge for a sponsored post. There's nowhere where there's a resource online where you can ask, oh my gosh, that brand is using my image without my permission. There's nowhere to go. So we have to ask each other these questions. So I think that being open and being generous with your knowledge is really important in this industry because there's just nowhere else we can go. You are constantly challenging yourself and looking to the future and doing new things. So I'm sure that you have your eye on some prize right now. What is that thing? 
My ultimate prize is my own clothing line. That is something that I'd really love to work towards. It's something that Charlie and I are talking about a lot more at the moment. And I feel like I've got a really clear picture in my head of how I'd like it to look, but it's something that I really would like the, my whole community to be a part of. I don't want it to be, this is my clothing line. It's something that I would like to be quite interactive. So that's, um, that's maybe a, a two year goal. So keep your eyes open for that. Well, you can follow Josie online at... You can follow me online at fashionmumbler.com is my blog. And if you search Fashion Mumbler on YouTube, you'll find all my styling and lookbook videos and vlogs and things like that. And Instagram and like to know it is Josie LDM. Josie, thank you for being so generous with all of your information. There's no wonder after listening to you why you have been so successful in this industry. We only wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Like to Know It Influencer Radio. Follow Josie for her classic feminine style and fresh beauty tips in the Like to Know It app at Josie LDN. In listening to this podcast, I hope you find your people, the ones with backgrounds, circumstances, and dreams just like you and that their stories empower you on your own journey. Are you ready to binge Influencer Radio? Flip back to season one for nine more episodes and be sure to hit subscribe because we have a lot more coming your way. Continue to follow along with all of our guests, all in the Like to Know It app. Their handles are listed in the description box of each episode. Do you have the app? The Like to Know It app is the only place where you can go to search for products and get 100% shoppable results all in the context of the lives of the real influential people who actually use those products. We've indexed the millions of Like to Know It influencer posts and made them all searchable and shoppable for you in one place. Is your mind blown? Download the free Like to Know It app on the App Store and Google Play and start searching today. Let's go shopping.